open our Bibles to John chapter 19. It's also in your bulletin, in the back part of the bulletin. I'm reading out of the New American Standard Version. Forgive me. Uh, but if you want to read the other version, that's okay as well. Both translations of God's holy and precious and infallible Word. Let us listen to God's Word. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no fault in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And so when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at, at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he handed him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of God, and what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This is the Tower 
or the fortress of Antonio. It's rather small. But actually, it was larger than this in Jesus' day. It covered over a football field. And it stretched along the northern uh, wall of the temple area. The temple area was also, both of them were built by Herod the Great. The, the, temp, uh, the temple mount was six, four times larger or longer than a football field end zone to end zone, north to south. It was six times wider than a football field east to west, which means that it was 24 times larger than the fortress of Antonio, but you'll notice that this fortress of Antonio has a mistake. <laughs> it's right to have pavement in the middle and a courtyard in the middle. But the tower on this side, which overlooked the wall, was 100 feet high so that they could look from that tower down on the temple mount to make sure that there was nothing going on there uh, in terms of an uprising or anything that they would have, have to quell. But this pavement here is very interesting. If, if you go to Jerusalem today, you can stand on that very pavement. It was a pavement that was a foot uh, thick, large stones, and it is obviously precisely where verse 13 in our text took place, which says, Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement. But in Hebrew... Gabbatha. Now, all that we're about to witness in this sentencing that we're looking at in this text, all this took place in the tower, the fortress of Antonio. Now let us first begin with a statement that Pilate said, uh, Behold the man. Verse 1, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Do we just pass over this simple sentence, not meant to bring up the emotions of anyone, just stated there very plainly, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. But that scourging was brutal. A short-handled whip with several thongs, and in those thongs were fragments of metal and of sharp bone that when slung by a Roman soldier would rip apart the back of the person being scourged. One could just die from this. No sooner had the scourging been completed than the mockery began. Verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him, a cruel form of mocking him as being the king of the Jews, a crown of thorns put down there on his head, uh, which would obviously hurt and, and bring forth blood there, and a, and a robe mocking him. It says they, were, they began to come up to him and say, Hail, king of the Jews, and to give him slaps, and you can also translate that blows. Gave him slaps or blows 
in the face. A better translation would be they, uh, showing the continuous nature of all this. They, they were coming and they were saying and they were giving him blows in the face. You know, the marvel is that Jesus did not totally collapse under this horrible abuse. Uh, then we read in verses 5 to 6, Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no fault in him. Jesus then came out wearing the, corn, the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to, him, to them, Behold, the man. Now the Jews had seen Jesus before, but they had never seen him in this condition. A pathetic spectacle, covered with blood flowing from his gashing wounds. And then Pilate says, I find no fault in him. We might ask, why did you scourge him? Scourging was normally what was done that preceded crucifixions. Nevertheless, in this case, it turns out that Jesus was being scourged not in order to prepare for crucifixion, but in order to escape crucifixion. Pilate was trying to release Jesus. He was saying, behold the man. Have pity on this man. Does he look like a king of the Jews to you? Has he not suffered enough? I want to pause momentarily to behold what they were beholding. What they were beholding is what Isaiah beheld. Back in chapter 3, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from, from him. But that's not the part of Isaiah 53 we need to be reading. Where we need to be reading is Isaiah 53, 5, which says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Now in the NASV, which I'm reading, <laughs> it says by his scourgings we are healed. Look at him. Look at what was done to him. Look at the verbs. Don't look at the why for our transgressions, for our iniquities that we are healed. Look just at the verbs or what happened to him. He was wounded. He was bruised. He was scourged. You know, we hold to a very important doctrine of the atonement called the the atonement. The atonement is a classy word that says, that has to do with why did Jesus die on the cross? What was the meaning of the death of Christ? And we tend to focus totally on the death. And, we, we, and, and what we're looking at there is primarily that it was a substitutionary penal atonement, that is that he suffered in our place to take the penalty that was due to us on himself. But we shouldn't limit it simply to the death of Christ, that, that doctrine. Verse 53.5 says, He was wounded for our transgression, bruised. He was scourged. It needs to include what preceded the death of Christ 
that he went through. Now, I want to go to the next point here as we look at what we're beholding. It was that scourging that was included, and, and Isaiah goes on to say, surely he has borne our griefs and, and our sorrows. Hebrews 4.15 reads, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in all things as we are, yet without sin. The point is this, that Jesus' sympathy extends to us in our suffering. And not just his sympathy extends, but his empathy because he endured the grief and the sorrow more than we could ever endure. He knows it. He understands. He empathizes with it. Uh, as most of you know, my wife died recently uh, from cancer. And we had to go through a hospice. And yours truly was a nurse. And I've been a minister for over 50 years. And I have comforted many people that have died of cancer or have gone through horrible things. But I, I really did not do them service because I had not experienced what they were experiencing. I have now experienced something of what they have experienced. Jesus has experienced suffering and to an extent of which he can sympathize and empathize with what we are going through. And there are some in this church today that are, are going through this very difficult, intense kind of, of suffering. We need to be reminded that when we go through this suffering, we do not go through this suffering alone. We read in 2 Corinthians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with, with, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ Jesus. Now returning to the text. Pilate is appealing to the pity of the Jews. Behold the man. But this was a serious miscalculation on Pilate's part. For we read in verse 6, When the chief priests and the officers beheld the man, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! Notice it wasn't just a Jewish crowd that was shouting this out. It was the chief priests and their sidekicks, their attendants. You know, the venom of the clergy of that day toward Jesus is on full display. Crucifixion was the ultimate form of torture. I remember one commentator, I don't know who he was, but one commentator said that crucifixion was torture perfected. And today, we reg regarding capital punishment, we, we go a great lengths to be sure that the, the murderer that is receiving this capital punishment experiences no pain. But in that day, the Jewish clergy wanted to inflict on Jesus the ultimate form of torture, crucifixion. 
Pilate said, take him yourself, crucify him. I find no guilt in him. I don't want to be a part of this. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Because he made himself out to be the Son of God, that is why we ought to crucify him. They present the only charge that is officially given in Scripture. It is the primary charge. And it was right on target. (laughs) This is also the primary theme of the Gospel of John. Remember, John begins his Gospels by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And you may not know that verse 18 begins with, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared or exegeted or explained Him, God. And, of course, you go through the whole Gospel of John, you have the I Ams, you have the signs, you have everything that goes along with the theme of the Son of God to the very end, where in chapter 20, 20, verse 31, it says, These things I have written, that you may know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and and that knowing this, you may believe this in His name. Believe in His name. However, interestingly... In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus prevents his disciples from telling anybody that he is the Son of God or that he is the Christ until the very end. You remember the leper ran up to him and said, Lord, if you will, you you can make me clean. He said, I will be cleansed. And then after he cleansed them, he said, now don't tell anybody. (laughs) You remember Peter, uh, Jesus said to them, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the very first words out of Jesus' mouth was, don't tell anyone. And, and in the synoptics, the, 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 the truth that he was the Christ, the Messiah, does not come out until the high priest asked him in the trial, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And he said, I am. However, John gives a, 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 new, a new nuance in this, in this regard. Because he suggests that during the last six months of Jesus' life, Jesus began to lead them to this charge. You remember the extended discourse in John chapter 8 of whether the people, the Jews, were children of Abraham or children of the devil. (laughs) And it became a rather heated kind of argument back and forth and got worse and worse and worse until... Finally, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw, and it was glad. And they shot back, you saw Abraham, and you're not yet 50 years old. And Abraham said, before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones to throw at him. And then in chapter 10, you have just about three months prior to the crucifixion, Jesus giving the discourse of the good shepherd, and I am the door of the sheep, and I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And then in the middle of this discourse, some people interrupt him and say, quit quit leaving us in suspense. Are you the Christ? Tell us. And part of his answer was, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, 
and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And they took up stones to throw at him. Both of those times, he was able to escape, escape out of the mist. But the, the whole point is this. Our Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ was purposely leading them to this charge, which was right on target. One commentator said, Divine providence so controlled and so uh, guided everything at the trial of Jesus that he was condemned to death, not on some false trumped-up charge, but on the true fact, on the actual reality, on his divine sonship, which was turned into a charge. The Jews say he made himself God's son, but he was God's son, the only begotten from the Father, and had manifested and proved his divine sonship to the Jews in countless ways. The Jews condemned God's son because he was God's son. Echo homo. Behold the man. These words have rung down through the centuries. Standing there scourged, bleeding, despised, mocked, bloody. But they were beholding the Son of God. We proceed then to the second statement. Behold your king, verses 8 through 15. Thank you, Mark. You, missed, you, you made me miss it, but thank you anyway. Appreciate it. Where were we? Behold your king. Verse 8, Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, that he made himself out to be the Son of God, he was even more afraid. Was he afraid before? Well, obviously, he must have been, had some fear because otherwise he would have just released Jesus and not scourged him. But it says now he was even more afraid. What was it about this statement that made him more afraid? What, was it the maniacal crowd shouting with venom, crucify, crucify? Was it the warning from his wife? Did Pilate intuitively sense there was something about Jesus that was more than a mere man? Perhaps from his conversations. Remember last week, uh, Pastor Brian uh, preaching to us on the last part of chapter 18. And, and there, Pilate has a conversation with, with Jesus. He's, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, are you saying this of yourself, or did somebody else tell you this, and you're repeating them? He, he said, uh, the Jews brought you to me, delivered you over to me, so what have you done? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my uh, members uh, fight, but my kingdom is not of this realm. And Pilate says, okay, then you're, you're a king. He, and Jesus said, yes, you're right in saying this. Uh, but... Uh, for this purpose, I've come into the world to give witness to the truth. And those who are of truth hear my voice. And Pilate said, what is truth? Those were some pretty deep, profound statements or discussion that they had together 
not of this world, not of this realm. And so when he heard this statement, he entered into the praetorium again, the Antonia Fortress, said to Jesus, where are you from? What a strange question to ask. He knew where he was from geographically. He was from Galilee. He would have heard of that. But it would have been an interesting answer had Jesus given it. Well, I was in the beginning with God. And the things that you see around you, they were, I, I helped make those. And I did all sorts of things <laughs> like, like that. Of course, I'm sure he wouldn't have used that. He would have said it much better than that. But Jesus' silence elicited this strong response from Pilate. Pilate said, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you? You know, as he says this, he sounds a little bit like Yoda in, in Star Wars. Notice the order of the words in the Greek. To me, you do not speak. Authority, I have to release you. Authority, I have to crucify you. But of course, he was putting this emphasis on it. Authority, to me, authority, I have. That was what he was trying to say. And of course, he had unlimited authority on this earth, at least from his perspective, from a human perspective. He could crucify anybody he wanted. But then Jesus answered with equal force, you would have no authority over me. And then a word that's probably not in your translation or mine, though yours may reflect it a little bit, none at all. My translation does not have that in there. Some translations have at all. You would have no authority at all. But it's stronger, much stronger. You would not have authority over me, none at all. A double negative, which does not in Greek turn it into a positive. A double negative in Greek makes it doubly negative. None at all. Unless it had been given you from, the, from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater, greater sin. You know, probably a new thought to Pilate. There's an authority up above. That's <laughs> a part of what's going on here. You know, I don't think he was a good theologian. It's probably the first time he had heard of that. Jesus adds, those who delivered me over to you have the greater sin. Pilate's role was to be both judge and jury. He had to carry out what he was supposed to do. But those who handed him over to them were crying, crucify. They were pressing the point. They wanted him dead by crucifixion. Well, that seems to be where the conversation ends. Jesus has the last word. Pilate has to decide what to do. So as a result of this, verse 12, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Now, these are new charges. And these charges are not directed at Jesus. You'll notice. These charges are directed at Pilate. And they appear to completely disarm Pilate. He knew what these statements implied. They could take these statements directly to Caesar. Caesar, Pilate is no friend of yours. He released someone who made himself out to be king of the Jews, thus opposing you, Caesar. Perhaps his position, even perhaps his very life, were at stake. The pressure was too much uh, for Pilate. 
verse 13. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. This, the, he's using Roman time here, which would have been about 6 a.m. in the morning. Now the fateful moment had come. Pilate is seated for a final judicial act. In verse 14b, goes on to say, he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. What a revealing statement. We have no king but Caesar. Had they forgotten God? That God was their king? You remember Gideon after the battle with the Midianites and chasing them all away and having a good time doing that? When the people came to Gideon and said, rule over us, you rule over us, and your sons rule over us, uh, rule over us. And Gideon responded, I will not rule over you, nor shall any son of mine rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. You remember a bit later, Samuel, when the people demanded him to appoint a king over them, and God told Samuel, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. God was their king. That was what they, the Jews, were to believe. So it was either from political expediency in order to get the result that they wanted, or it was by sheer blatant apostasy, or both. We have no king but Caesar. But again, he was the king of the Jews. He was the Messiah that they were beholding. Pilate said, behold the man. Pity him. I find no fault in him. They said, he made himself out to be the Son of God, but he was the Son of God. Pilate said, Behold your king. Shall I crucify your king? They said, We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Crucify him. But he was, in fact, their king. But we want to ask, what were they actually beholding? We read on, verse 16. So he handed him over to them, to be crucified. Pilate handed Jesus over to them, the chief priests, figuratively speaking, because, because they were clamoring for his death to be crucified. He, he acceded to their request. Though the Roman soldiers did the dirty work, uh, it is not without significance that John records here in verse 14 now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. Now, on the day of preparation, lambs were brought to the Temple Mount, just south of the Tower of Antonio, to be slaughtered. Thousands of lambs being brought into the Temple area. Josephus tells us that two million people in that day would come for Passover. And that lambs were slaughtered for every 10 of them. However, whenever Josephus gives you a number, you usually slash the last zero 
off of that number, uh, so scholars tell us. And so it'll be 200,000, but even 200,000 of one for every 10 would come down to 20,000 lambs. That's a lot of lambs. This was about to take place in the Temple Mount there. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. And this is not without significance. It's also that at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, John records a most remarkable statement by John the Baptist who was baptizing in the Jordan. And when he saw Jesus coming, he pointed his disciples, he pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A statement that seemingly comes out of nowhere. Of course, John the Baptist was using Old Testament sacrificial language. Lamb sacrificed for the sin or trespass offerings. Lamb sacrificed for the morning and the evening offerings. But a lamb sacrificed at Passover. How did John know to use this exact language of Jesus? Obviously, from the Lord, from God. He was speaking prophetically and with purpose. But we need to go back further in time to, so, to someone some six, seven hundred years before <laughs> Isaiah 53, where we read, he was brought as a lamb. To the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. For he was cut off out of the land of the living. But Isaiah goes on to explain why. And would you believe that nine times in the 12 verses of Isaiah chapter 53, he tells why. Would you like to hear the why? Verse 5. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. Verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8. He was cut off of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Verse 10. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and the, and, the, uh, and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 11, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and I will divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many. And he made intercession for the transgressors. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no, no sin became sin in our place, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And thus we'll conclude with Apostle Peter. In his first epistle to the persecuted Jews in, or persecuted Christians in Asia Minor, in 1:18 following, 
of 1 Peter, knowing that you were redeemed, with perishable, not with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let us bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, how grateful we are, how thankful we are, how saddened we are when we see and we behold the man and the suffering who was in fact your son, our God, the king and his suffering, but who is indeed our king. But as we behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you, dear Lord. Even as Paul said to Timothy, he said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Lord, we are the chief of sinners. But we thank you, dear Lord, that you have laid upon him the iniquity of us all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.